I invite you today to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 14 as we continue on in our study of John's gospel, looking at the fact that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And as I said last week, today is the last time I'm going to be in John for a couple of months as we get into our Christmas messages, and then in the new year, I'm going to be preaching some messages on what is the church. Um, But I'm going to do something a little bit different today, Um, and, and that is I'm going to preach the same message today, to this morning, and tonight. You say, well, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is this message is way too long for one message, so I'm going to split it into two parts, okay? Because I really felt like before we took some time off from the book of John for a couple of months, I wanted to, to preach this whole passage, um, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Now, my, my family was here, some of my family was here for Thanksgiving, and I told my family what I was doing. My sister suggested I just preach the whole thing this morning and then tell you there's no church tonight. Like, surprise, you know. Um, but because that would probably keep us here till close to 1 o'clock, uh, I didn't think like that was a, probably a good idea, okay? So I'm going to preach part of it this morning, and I know about where I'm going to end, although we might end a little sooner than I think we do, just depending on where we are on time. And then whatever I don't get through, I'm going to preach tonight, okay? So some of you will say, well, how am I going to know the end? You just got to come back, okay, and hear the end of this message tonight. Uh, But we're going to be in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14, looking at the way, the truth, and the life as Jesus continues uh, to talk with his disciples and to, to minister to them as he prepares to go to the cross. Let's consider a whole text together this morning, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Father, we ask now, in the name of Jesus Christ, as we come before you today in your word, that you would have free reign in our hearts, that you would use the word of God to speak to us today. Lord, in a room like this, 
it is impossible for any one person to know all the burdens and hurts and cares and struggles and questions that have walked through the doors today as we all have them in our hearts and lives. But you know them. And you have the answers for all of these things in your word. We ask today that as we look at Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, you would speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit using your word today. And more than that, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be open and receptive to what you have to say. For one who hears these things today, who has never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation and and Jesus alone, we pray that you would continue to do your work drawing them to yourself. For disciples here today, we ask that you would continue to convict us of sin, to mold us and make us in the image of Jesus Christ. That we would be, that we'd be able to walk out of this place different than we came in today because we have heard the truth of the word proclaimed and we have responded to your working in our hearts. Lord, I ask that anything I say and do today would not get in the way of what you would like to be accomplished here today. In your name we pray. Amen. In our world, a great divide opens up between religion and the gospel. And though there are many who, there, who proclaim the gospel that may be lumped into the larger area of religion by those who classify such things in our world, you need to understand that there is a, a humongous difference between religion and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Religion points us inward to what we do or don't do or say or give to gain eternity. The gospel points us to Jesus and tells us we can't do anything on our own to get to heaven uh, or in the presence of God. Even the non-religious of our world believe in the religion of themselves. Take a man like Ted Turner, for example. This multi-billionaire founder of CNN and the one-time owner of the Atlanta Braves was once quoted in an article as saying, you know, I'm not looking for any big rewards. I'm not a religious person. I believe this life is all we have. I'm not doing what I'm doing to be rewarded in heaven or punished in hell. I'm doing it because I feel it's the right thing to do. Almost every religion talks about a savior coming. When you look in the mirror in the morning, when you're putting on your lipstick or shaving, you're looking at the Savior. Nobody else is going to save you but yourself. Turner's words are are shocking, right? Especially for a Sunday morning church crowd. But Turner's words represent the majority of the sin-darkened world that we live in. Many look within themselves for their own security of eternity. If they subscribe to a religion, you can be assured such a religion highlights the personal deeds, penances, rites, and rituals they need to complete. <coughs> Excuse me. I've been fine all morning until this point. That religion they subscribe to highlights uh, the deeds, penances, rites, and rituals they need to complete in order to gain this paradisial life that they are seeking. One of the assurances that man seeks in this life 
is the security of his eternal soul. C.S. Lewis talks in one of his books uh, about how we, we always, we have these things in life that meet our needs, right? We, we experience hunger, and so therefore we, we find food. We experience the need for companionship, and we find that in friendship and relationships. And so we experience an eternal need in our souls, and there's a reason for that, because God created us with an eternal soul that needs fulfillment and that can only be found in him and him alone. But people try to fill that with so many other things in our lives. And here on the night of Jesus' impending betrayal, arrest, trial, and crucifixion, Jesus is once again reassuring his disciples with the surety of the life they have in him. The disciples at this point have come to realize by Jesus' words that he is leaving them. They are afraid, they're anxious, they're resistant to the whole idea. And here Jesus reassures them with the greatest message he can give. That is the message of himself. And what you see here in this passage is that because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, he alone can promise eternity in heaven and give eternal power for a disciple's life here on earth. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, the way to God, the truth of God, the the life of God himself, who offers it to us, he alone is the one who can grant entrance into heaven, into eternity. And he alone is the one who can empower you, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, to live for the glory of God. And what we see in this chapter, as Jesus shares this with those 12 or 11 disciples that are still in the room with him after Jesus has departed, is still true and necessary for us today especially if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. So I implore you to hear these things and to be encouraged by what Jesus says and challenged by the truth of who he is and what he's done for us. In the first four verses, as Jesus continues to to reassure his disciples, what he gives to them here is the assurance of knowing Jesus. Assurance of knowing himself. He tells them that there is victory over fear found in knowing him. He says in John chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So just to understand where we are, let's recap a little bit of what we've seen. In his love, Jesus is continuing to strengthen the disciples and himself. And this passage is a continuation of what has happened in John chapter 13. There, Jesus has just revealed that there is a traitor amongst the group of the 12 disciples. He has called on them, as we saw last week, to love one another as he loved them. He's called on them, as we saw a few weeks ago, to serve one another as he served them and will serve them at the cross. He has then predicted the imminency of his glorification. And that glorification, as we saw last week, is his death on the cross, the reason for which he came. He's preparing them to live out their calling without his physical presence because soon in their lives, everything will change. And last time, at the end of John 13, we looked at Peter and how he has boldly yet rashly declared his superior love for Jesus and how Jesus corrected that declaration that Peter made. And you have to wonder if the disciples in the backs of their minds begin to wonder, is Peter the one 
who is going to betray Jesus based on what Jesus has said. So all of this leads to an understandable disquiet and fear infiltrating the ranks of the disciples. And this fear will only compound in a few short hours when Jesus is delivered over to those who wish him dead. And it will culminate when the disciples watch in horror as their master and Lord is crucified. Okay, do you have the picture? We understand the hearts and minds of the disciples. In the face of these things, then, Jesus speaks these words that we find before us today. Everything he says here is truth and grace for troubled hearts. The greatest thing that we need in times of distress and discouragement is the truth of God. No matter what you're facing in life, that is what we need first and foremost. And so first, Jesus confirms for them that there is a great assurance in knowing him, the Son of God. And so Jesus alone then can command what he commands here. You notice what he says? He says, let not your hearts be troubled. That is, that is an imperative sentence. Stop being troubled. Stop being stirred up. They are not to be struck with dread and fear over what they've experienced or what they are going to experience in the future. Instead, they are to find peace and confidence in him. Because you notice here, Jesus doesn't command them to just not do something, right? He, he replaces that, right? He says, let not your hearts be troubled, but then he gives them a positive command. What is it? Believe in God. Believe also in me. <clears throat> so instead of Experiencing trouble, they can find confidence in him through a, purpose, through a purposeful placement of their trust in God. And what is he doing? Well, once again, Jesus is establishing himself as the object of his disciples' faith. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that Jesus never said, and it's never enough just to say, well, you know what? In order to get to heaven, you just need to believe, right? That looks like something you put on a cat poster on your wall, believe, right? Jesus is very specific. Believe in what? Believe in God. Believe also in me, the Son of God. He is looking at the disciples and saying, you need to trust me. You need to have faith in me. And instead of experiencing trouble in their hearts, they are to turn those hearts to God. And Jesus calls on them to believe in God the Father and himself, God the Son. They need not fear his death. They need not fear what the future may hold for them or the terror of the present. And just like the disciples, when our circumstances in life are filled with uncertainty, our hearts begin to search for purchase. Our surroundings don't always provide this. Everything the disciples knew for the last three years of their lives is coming to an end. Jesus would no longer be with them in person, instructing them and performing his signs. He would be seemingly, to them, taken away from them. But in the face of all of this, they could have peace and security, not because of who they are or what they were experiencing, but because of who he is. And that is the only confidence and peace we can have in life. You can have great relationships with your family and your friends, with your spouse. You can have a great job. You can have all of your seeming problems under control, but none of that is going to give you lasting peace. 
And none of that is going to give you lasting hope. There is only peace and hope, no matter what happens, found in Jesus and Jesus alone. As we said last week, it all goes back to the cross and what he has done. Because Jesus is the word, as John calls him, God incarnate, they can rest in him. Because he is God, they can hope in him when all hope seems lost. And in their resting, they can look ahead to a promised future found only in him. Jesus continues discussing the assurance of knowing him in verse 2. He talks to them about the eternity they have in the presence of God through that faith and trust in him. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So here, Jesus tells his disciples that in fact, he is going to depart, but he is departing for their advantage. He points their hope and their faith ahead to what they are one day guaranteed in himself. And again, I alluded to this earlier in a prayer, but when the Bible speaks of hope, In the New Testament particularly, it's not talking about why I hope that will happen, but it's talking about a confident expectation. So when I'm using that word today, hope, we're talking about the confident expectation that we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus states that in him, they are assured eternity in the presence of God. Jesus, he says here, is returning home. Where? To his father's house, to heaven. And what he is doing is making provision for them to join him. His home Jesus' home has become theirs. Namely, Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. In heaven, the undisputed home of God is abundant space for his children to live with him. And I do want to take just a minute this morning and address an interesting, albeit minor, textual usage to understand. Because Perhaps you've memorized John chapter 14, verse 2 growing up, or perhaps you have a Bible before you that today it doesn't read, in my Father's house are many rooms. It reads something like, in my Father's house are many mansions. I mean, that's the way I always heard it growing up. And here, I just want to point out to you that that the English word choice here shows some weakness over the years. Because immediately when we think of a mansion, we think of the stately abode, right? We think of a grand and a glorious home. In fact, you may be familiar with an entire old gospel song that was written inspired by this verse. In 1949, Ira Stamphill composed an entire gospel song, which you'll find actually in our hymn books, and that song is entitled Mansion Over the Hilltop. How many are familiar with that, right? In it, he contrasted his earthly status with his coming heavenly one. He expresses in that hymn a desire for a gold mansion lined with silver, a mansion that is all his own, complete with harp and crown. And we must understand that heaven, though it will have things that are familiar to us, the scriptures speak of that, it will also at the same time be nothing like this earth. And for that I am very thankful. And in the chorus of that old song you, re- you sing this, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. In that bright land, we'll never grow old. And someday yonder, we'll never more wander, but walk on streets that are purest gold. And perhaps many of us in this room today know that song by heart. And some of us have even sung it as a special number, or we've sung it as a congregation. But I would argue today that that song and the word mansion here does not grasp the full meaning of of this passage. Now, Please don't get me wrong, okay? I did not 
ask you to come to church today to beat up one of your favorite gospel songs, okay? But I think we should challenge its premise that has perhaps seeped into our own hearts because of the use of the word mansions, and that word is now all but exclusively used to mean a large, impressive house in today's vernacular. And so therefore, we may, in our own minds, have a false perception of heaven. Please understand here, Jesus is not promising to disciples the keys to their own estate when they get to heaven. Jesus also is not trying to show some delineation. You know, Jesus is not saying, okay, now for some of you, you're going to live in the palatial area of heaven, and some of you, you're going to be in the trailer park, okay? That's also not what Jesus is saying here. Instead, Jesus is saying that in heaven, in the Father's house, there are many, and the Greek word behind this literally means dwelling places or abodes or rooms. Perhaps an English word to give you an idea is, is a suite, a place where you'll find everything you need for life. It carries the idea of an individual place to live, something that is incomplete and all-encompassing, but within another house. And so, in fact, when the King James translation was undertaken, the word mansion was actually used, there was a usage of that word to communicate a room, a a smaller place to live within a bigger house. But if you look that up in the dictionary now, you'll find that definition, and next to it you'll you'll see the word listed archaic. And the reason it's still around, that people still list it, is because of the usage in the King James translation of the Bible. So what are we saying here? Well, the point isn't how incredible the dwelling place is going to be, but the point that Jesus is making here in verse 2 is that there is ample provision made in the Father's house so that all who are his can live with him. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's not here to say, hey, I have the biggest house reserved for you. What he's saying is, there is room for you in my Father's house. I have a place for you through me. So now, Before you leave today's service discouraged because the pastor popped your dream of owning a heavenly villa, let me share with you what Jesus is promising you. Because I believe what Jesus is promising here is better than that. What is Jesus promising you? He's promising you a place in the home of God. He is promising you a refuge in the presence of your creator. He's promising you that all disciples belong in the family of God. And as such, we will live with our heavenly father one day in a dwelling place located inside the father's house. I don't know about you, but that is a million times better than having a home at the corner of Peter and Paul Avenue. I would rather live in the father's house. Often, we think of heaven in terms of what we think will give us the most comfort here on earth. We are probably all guilty of ascribing some earthly feelings to heaven. And that's where this idea, we've really latched on to this idea of like, oh, I'm going to get to own a mansion. Because probably here on earth, many of us, we really wish we could own a really nice, you know, a big house or this. And we think, well, one day when I get to heaven, we talk of Maybe things like seeing loved ones or talking to the saints of old or maybe for some of us who like to fish, fishing in the crystal sea. But the greatest part about heaven is what God highlights, it, highlights about it in his word. And what does God tell us the greatest part about heaven is? The greatest part about heaven is that we'll be in the presence of God forevermore. 
that is the greatest promise that God can make us. Jesus says at the, here at the end of verse 2, what does he say? Where I am, you may be also. He's the reason we're there. He's the source of all light and the promise of no more tears. In the presence of God, there's no sin, no brokenness, no fear, loneliness, hurt, sorrow, or pain. There is only eternal peace, praise, glory, and goodness. And that's where I want to be. And I don't care if it means I don't get to live in my own mansion. I want to be in the presence of God. This is what Jesus promises his disciples on that night. He promises that one day they will enjoy an eternal home in the presence of God. And he says if it wasn't true, he wouldn't make that promise. He says if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? God always keeps his word. Jesus must depart from them so that he may prepare a place for them, he says. And again, as we come to the end of verse 2, perhaps we ask ourselves a question. I mean, that's an interesting phrase. When Jesus says that I go to prepare, uh, what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And then at the beginning of verse 3, he says, and if I go to prepare a place for you. So if God is omniscient and omnipotent, the question comes up, does he not have enough places for all who trust in Christ? And again, uh, we, we get this idea, is, is Jesus undertaking some sort of heavenly remodel to open up more places for people to live? And again, I, I would encourage us here, let us not color heaven with our homey understanding and pictures. But let us see what Jesus is saying. How is Jesus preparing a place for his disciples? He's preparing a place by preparing the way. You see, what is Jesus doing to prepare the place for his disciples? He is going to the cross to provide the way that they may come into the presence of God. At the cross, he will die the substitutionary death as the Lamb of God given to take away the sins of the world. And in so doing, the wrath of God will be satisfied and the way to heaven will be opened up for all who trust in Jesus. This is the greatest work of preparation because without Jesus, you and I cannot enter eternity. Without Jesus, we have no hope to stand before the Father. So when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he's talking about that he's going to the cross. And there I will prepare the way to eternity. And with Jesus' work promised and hope found in him alone, he promises to return for his own. In verse 3, we see that promise return. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And we looked at the end of verse 3 just a second ago and we talked about the greatest part about heaven is that we're in the presence of God. But Jesus has, has just told his disciples here, I'm going away. He said at the end of verse thir chapter 13, he's going to where they cannot come but he's promised them in response to Peter's question that one day they will come to him. And here, he promises this return yet again. If Jesus goes to prepare this place, and he is going to do just that, he will just as assuredly come again. He promises to come back and take his disciples unto himself to this place promised to them in the presence of God. And so the disciples who are troubled at Jesus' departure, can look ahead with confidence to the return of Jesus who will personally deliver them to the eternal dwelling in the Father's house. 
That's the promise. Jesus would depart from them, but he would not be gone forever. The disciples would spend their lives looking ahead towards that return. We read this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul, who is, who is an apostle, he was looking ahead to the day that Jesus would return. And indeed, we still look forward to the, his return today. When Jesus returns, all those who know him will join him and be taken to eternity. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 54, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the past, the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. In Jesus, there is an assurance of his promised return. And this promise is a great comfort to his disciples on this side of eternity. Listen, in this earth, the road is hard. The days are long. The heartbreaks and disappointments are going to be many in your life. But the assurance of Jesus' return is truth and grace for troubled hearts. And in him, there is an assurance of the way to this wonderful eternity. In verse 4, Jesus now says, there's a knowledge of this way to God. He says, and you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus here assures the disciples that not only do they need not be troubled because of the promised future and his promised return to take them to that future, but also they cannot be troubled because they know the way to this eternity. Jesus is going to the Father. He is going to heaven out of their sight. He will come again and gather those who will be there. And there is a way to heaven for eternity. And Jesus says, you already know that way. This is not a mystery that is hidden from you. And here's one of the greatest truths to understand. God does not hide from us. Instead, he makes himself very known and the way to him very clear. He tells us who he is, what he's done, who we are, and how we can be with him. By this point, Jesus has walked with his disciples for three years he has given them everything they need to know, and they, everything they need to know the way to where he goes. And in Jesus, there is assurance of knowing the way to God, and that assurance is himself. And that's what we see secondly here today. We see the way, the truth, and the life in verses, six, or verses 5 through 7. In verse 5, we're met with a question. Jesus says, you know the way, the, the, the way to where I am going, you know that. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So Jesus has given the greatest assurance that he can give to his disciples. He's given the assurance of himself. He says, listen, believe in me. Trust in me. I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place, and I will come again for you, and you know the way to get here. He's promised that through belief in him, his disciples are guaranteed eternity in the Father's house, to which he personally grants access and to which he will personally take them. So they do not need to be fearful or distressed as they know this way to eternity. Yet, their hearts are still struggling. Their minds are still unconvinced. They're not, they are coming to terms with Jesus' departure. 
probably at this point, they're coming to terms with that means his death, but they don't know what lies beyond that. And so Thomas speaks here in verse 5, but really Thomas is speaking on behalf of all the rest of the disciples. And in their hearts, he says, Lord, we, we don't even, we still don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know how to get there? You see, they still struggle to accept the fact of Jesus' death, though it's been predicted to them, and they don't understand that Jesus will return to the Father. And again, Jesus has told them one day they will. They will understand this when the Holy Spirit comes. However, what Thomas contends next is what Jesus will challenge. Thomas claims that they do not know the way. Basically, he's saying this. Lord, if we don't know where you're going, how can we know how to get there? And it's here that Jesus gives another revelation of himself. And in verse 6, we see the exclusivity of Jesus. He says here, I am, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the sixth I am statement of John's gospel And in it, Jesus proclaims the exclusive truth of himself. In it, Jesus gives the answer that mankind has tried to answer through through religion. Every religious person, and even those who are non-religious, will have to acknowledge this. The way to God for us is blocked. We have a problem. And we may not all, not everyone may express it this way, but at the end of the day, you have to understand that problem is sin. Because of sin, we cannot get to God. And so religion says this, I must do something in order to overcome this obstruction, and thus is the basis for every human religion. Whether it be works, or penance, or prayers, or whatever it may be, every every human religion is based in this, the way to God is blocked, I have to do something in order to get there. But Jesus says, there is only one way, to the Father. There's only one way past the obstruction of sin, and that way is himself. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas contests that they do not know the way to where Jesus goes. Jesus says that he himself is the way. He is the path to God. And that's an interesting statement, he is the path to God, because there are so many ideas that float around when we talk about that. Somebody will say, well, what what is your path to God, or what is the way to God? And people will offer things like good works, money, penance. These are various paths that people have tried. But the only path that will lead you to God is Jesus. And Jesus answers Thomas's complaint in the very first part of this statement. He says, I am the way. The way to get to where Jesus is going is through belief in Jesus. It is to appropriate his teachings and callings through a personal choice of faith. So that brings us into the second part of Jesus' statement. Because it's not only I am the way, but I am the truth. He is the truth. You see, Jesus is the highest revelation of God. He is the Word incarnate. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Stop right there. 
this is a reference to the Old Testament, right? Have you read the Old Testament? There are many things written there, right? This is how God spoke through the prophets, the things that were written down, the messages that were communicated. This is how God got his message. But the writer of Hebrews continues, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You see, Jesus is the truth of God because he is God. Seeing Jesus is seeing God. Jesus is the gospel. His life, death, and resurrection is the good news. And what Jesus said and did reveal who God is and what he has done for us. And it convicts us of who we are and what we need in him. So therefore, lastly, Jesus says, I am the life. He is eternal life itself. And he bestows that life upon all who come to to him in faith. So we must understand there is no hope for life outside of Jesus. There is no heaven without faith in Jesus alone. And that is what the second half of the statement confirms. It confirms that trust in Jesus is exclusive. Jesus continues, no one comes to the Father except through me. The message of the gospel is an exclusive message. And Jesus is crystal clear here. The words speak for themselves. We don't have to to, to explain these very deeply because you could take it at face value. No one makes it to God the Father except through faith in Jesus, God the Son. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. It is a cohesive message. You see, Jesus is the way to the Father because Jesus alone is the truth of the revelation of the Father, and he alone possesses the life of God the Father. So the message of the gospel is exclusive. But at the same time, it is inclusive because that message is for all to hear. You don't have to be from a certain social class, standing, religious background, race, gender, financial level, level, or meet any other prerequisite to hear and respond to the message of the gospel. It is a message for all people in all places. The message of the gospel is for you today. But the message of the gospel And the message of God through Jesus is exclusive in that there is only one way to God. And though you may claim to worship a God in your religion, I'm here to tell you what God tells you. That God isn't real. And though you may think you will be okay to get into heaven because of your own efforts, I'm here to tell you what God tells you in in his word, you won't be okay. And though you may think that as long as you believe in some higher power and that'll be enough, I'm here to tell you what God tells you, it won't be enough. And though you may think that half-heartedly acknowledging the truths of the Bible will get you in, it won't. The Bible is clear that only complete, unadulterated trust in Jesus alone for salvation is the way to God and eternal life in heaven. And if that doesn't sound very tolerant, the truth is it isn't tolerant. The truth, this is the truth. And telling you the truth is the most loving thing I can do for you today. See, people say that all the time. Well, 
that doesn't sound very loving. Truth doesn't care how you feel. Truth is truth, friend. And the truth of God is this. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. And the only way to God in Jesus Christ is full and complete faith. It's not just, well, I I said some good things or I gave this or I did that and I went to church. It's faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith transforms your life. You cannot be good enough to get to heaven. You can't claim, just claim you love Jesus and live your life the way you want to. You can't have God on your own terms. You can't fake God out by coming to church and saying nice things. You can't count on some emotional feeling of happiness that rushes over your heart because you remember your mom taking you to church as a kid. And you can't even count on, well, I prayed some prayer and I said the right words, so that's turning the key to open the doors of heaven. That's because entering eternity isn't about us. It's about Jesus Christ. You and I need a relationship with God through Jesus. You and I need faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. You and I need to confess our sins, repent from them, and place our trust in Jesus for eternal life. You need God's work in your life. The Bible is very clear about confession and repentance, that we say the same things about our sin that God says. We confess them and we repent. We're going this way and now we turn to faith in Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. No works, no feelings, no rituals, and no relatives will save your soul from eternal damnation. Only a personal placing of faith in Jesus alone will do this. You say, well, that's all well and good, but I'm not going to do that. Listen, friend, if you don't go through Jesus, you're not going to the Father. Jesus' promise in verse 2, when he says here, in my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, what I've told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That isn't just for whoever wants it. That's for people who come to the Father through Jesus. That's for disciples. That's for those who have placed personal faith. He will bring those who believe in him to the Father, for he and the Father are one. That's what Jesus says here in verse 7. He confirms yet again his identity. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says that if one truly knows him, he will know the father. You see, many in Jesus' day asked him time and again about the father. The Jews were worshipers of God. They were God's chosen people. They asked Jesus then about the father. And Jesus once again affirms here that seeing him is seeing the father. That you know God by knowing Jesus. The disciples have seen the father for they have seen Jesus. So Jesus here tells them he has given them all the proof they need to know the way to where he goes. He has shown them the way in himself as the truth and the life so that they may enter eternity. And so verse 7 here really is Jesus lovingly chiding his disciples. They have the word incarnate before them and they have enjoyed his presence. They should know him. And you and I today, we may be all too familiar with the things of God. Perhaps you have been in church a good portion of your life hearing the message of the hope of Jesus. But hearing it 
or even accepting that you've heard it and believing it are vastly different things. There's a difference. We must make a personal decision to place trust in him as our only hope and security. And this alone will bring peace to our troubled, wayward hearts. You can know no peace in this life outside of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, he alone can promise eternity in heaven and give eternal power for a disciple's life here on earth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the undisputed, exclusive way to God. This is comfort for troubled hearts. You do not have to wonder or worry about eternity. You can have answers in Jesus. He secures all those who trust in him. And so today, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, if you have never professed faith in him and him alone, you can By his grace, you can receive the greatest gift of love the world has ever known, the finished work of Jesus. And in this, you can know you will spend eternity in heaven when you leave this earth forever in the presence of God. If you are here today and you know Jesus as Savior, you are called to live for the kingdom of God here on this earth. But sadly, many Christians lose sight of the eternal instead of, and, and, and instead live for the temporal today. We live a life attached to all the things that don't matter. Now, listen, God has given us good gifts to enjoy on this earth, but never at the expense of losing sight of living for his kingdom. We need more of Jesus in our lives each day so that we can live for him here. We need to see him in his word, having our eyes filled with the glory of who he is in a greater way every day so that we can make a difference for him here on this earth. You cannot live a life that pleases God if you live a life that is consumed with the here and now. And so instead, let us seek God's help to live for the glory of heaven on earth today. Life on this temporal earth is fraught with hardship, pain, uncertainty, and loss. This is a fact of life. In Jesus, there is grace and truth for troubled hearts. So Christian... I implore you to look to Jesus, to rest in him, and live for the kingdom of God, because you know how it ends. And it is a glorious thing that is promised to us. This gives us victory over fear and doubt, and empowers us to live lives to the glory of the kingdom. Father, thank you for the time we've had to be in your word today. Thank you for the truth of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the way, the truth and the life. And Lord, as we hear that proclaimed today, may you convict our hearts again. Lord, may you, may your word and your Holy Spirit go deep within our hearts today and plumb the depths of who we are and what we believe and show us who we are. Show us if we have never truly trusted in Jesus Christ. We have said all the good things or maybe prayed a a prayer. Maybe we've just thought good things about Jesus, but we've never 
truly place our faith in him and him alone. Would you convict us of that today? Lord, for Christians here today, would you convict our hearts of how we live? Would you ask us this question, do we live for the kingdom? And if not, why not? Would you show us those things in our lives that have taken up too much of our priority, of our time, that we have tried to hold on to in our fleshly sinful battles? And would you help us to see that what we need is not more of this earth, but we need more of you and you alone. And Lord, we pray as we close our service today that you would continue to do your work in our hearts, that as we, we walk out of this place, we have places to go, we have things on our minds, on our calendars, that you would help us not to forget these things today. She would help the word of God to continue to resonate and help us to respond to these things. That lives can be changed for the glory of God. Be with us now as we finish up and we depart. Bring us back here to worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.